You may be seated. It is always a blessing to have live worship. Thank you, Allie. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Jody. Thank you, Toby. Very good. Very good. I had them. Uh, we're doing it a little different this morning. Um, we are uh, putting our study of James on hiatus as we are in the Advent season and felt fitting that we would preach upon, teach upon, um, read upon the Advent themes of hope, love, joy, and peace. And last week, our brother Ron uh, provided a message on hope, and this week we will be talking about the message of love. Heavenly Father, we come before you now with open hearts and open minds, having praised and worshiped you as spirit and truth, our hands raised up to you, for you, uh, you alone, are worthy to be praised. And as we do, Lord, and our hearts are lifted up, Father, we come before now your word, your word of life, your word that gives us hope, your word that gives us faith, your word, Father, that anchors our salvation in you. And so, Father, as we read your word this morning, as we look upon that wonderful word of love, as Jody prayed this morning, we will never fully understand the full depth of that word. But, Father, we're going to live as if we desire to every day. And so with that, Father, we just give you thanks and praise, and we ask your blessing to be upon uh, this message and your word in Jesus' name. You know, as we celebrate the advent of Christ, we not only recognize His coming over 2,000 years ago, but we look forward to His ultimate return, whenever that might be. And this, is not, this not only brings us hope, as I said, that's what Ron preached on last week, which I love that word, hope, but it reveals something very precious to us all, that's the love of God, the love of God. When we think of all the good things that we've received, our Heavenly Father's love is the catalyst from which they all come. I don't know about you, but there are many things I struggle with when it comes to the love of God in my life. And that how can he love me in such a way that he chose to redeem me? He could have easily went to the next person. He could have easily went to that person. God's love is for that person over there, not for me. Does he know what I've done? Does he know what I think? Does he know what I feel? And yet, he chose to love me. He chose me. He chose you. Even while we were in the midst of our sin and rebellion, He chose you. Why? Why? I, that's me. When I read the Word of God, I'm like that two-year-old child before God. Why? 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 Because we deserved it? Because we're entitled to it? It's simply because He loves us. 
for all the things that are done that need a reason or justification in doing it. Love is the only one that is a reason unto itself. Like I said, I don't think we'll ever get to the depth of understanding God's love as it's shed upon this world that rejects Him and upon us who don't deserve it. Well, this morning as we heard Josh speak about love this Advent Sunday, let us continue with that theme by looking at some Scripture that specifically speaks about the love of God as it relates to how we are to love God, how we are loved by God, and how we are to love others. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the first, John's first epistle. First John will be in First John chapter 4. First John chapter 4. And I'll be reading... A few verses, starting in verse 7 and concluding with verse 21. So 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him in this love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit and when we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as He is also, we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he does not know his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And may God add a blessing to his word. Now, just within these few scriptures, there was actually quite a few, John reveals much about God's love as it relates to his son, as it relates to you, as it relates to me, and how it relates to Him. And so I thought it would be prudent in light of the Advent to preach upon love from these texts and examine them with the hope that we have that what we hear today is a deeper understanding of God's love 
in all of its facets. Now, from the very beginning of John's teaching on love, we see that true love comes from God the Father. And we see that in verse 7. Now, the word loved used here in this portion text comes from the Greek word agape, as Josh has provided this morning an understanding of that word. It is a self-giving love that is not merited. It is the highest form of love, as Josh said, in the Greeks, but rarely attained because of the corruption of sin. It's a godly love, a perfect love, a love that a believer, as believers, we are commanded to exemplify, demonstrate, and walk in, as defined in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 13. Now, this love is different than the other types of love that Josh had talked about in his um, introduction to the Advent theme of love. And like he said, in the classical Greek, we have the love of eros, which is a sensual love, if he stated it. It's where we get the word erotica. Philia, which is an affectionate love between, uh, without the sensual element of it, but it is akin to a love of friendship and brotherly love, i.e., we get the word Philadelphia, which is the city for which is called what? Brotherly love, which... Any football team that goes there knows it's not a city of brotherly love. I mean, I think they were the ones that threw snowballs at Santa. So they have a little work to do on what that really means and how they walk in it. Then there's storge, which is a love of family and a closer love than philia. And these are just a few. And the most prominent ones in the New Testament is philia and agape. Now, these forms of love, separate of agape, we're all able to exhibit. We don't need any special power. We don't need any special grace to love as a brother, to love in the family, or in the eros. But we do need the power of God in order to love in the capacity of agape. Even though it's the highest form of love, as Josh said, it was corrupted by our sin. And therefore, we truly cannot love in the purest sense of agape. In fact, the agape love is not a love that's found in the natural man. It comes from and only can be directly from the Father in its purest form, by way of the Holy Spirit. It is given to those whom the Father knows, those whom He's predestined, to receive it. It is a supernatural love that is a catalyst for our redemption and by which we are empowered to love others in the same manner. We are incapable of loving God in an agape manner without being reborn. And we're incapable of loving others in a true agape sense, separate of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Now this is important for us to understand because there are many today who believe that God's love flows to all equally. That is true in the sense of His benevolent love, which comes from His goodwill, His beneficent love, which is His goodwill 
in action, or what we would term common grace, where the rain falls upon the just and the unjust. And it is also true within this complacent love. Now, that word complacent doesn't mean um, resting on your laurels or inactive. It means it is a love of great pleasure. It is a love of delight. Now, those types of love, the benevolent love, the beneficent love, and the complacent love, God shares to all. But it is not true of His salvific love, which only is found in agape love and in the redemption of those whom He chooses. It was agape love that wooed you unto Himself and ignited your faith to believe upon His Son, Jesus Christ, and believe upon Him, and it is the same love that was given to you so that you can love Him with a pure heart. And it is this love that John references here in the text. And the reason it flows from God is because God is love. We find that in verse 8. Now what does it mean, God is love? Well, first... It's not how we define God, right? God is love, therefore love is God. Well, early on in 1 John, he also said God is light. That doesn't mean light is God. When we say God is love, what we're saying is love is the essence of who God is. It is revealed by way of his holy attributes. In fact, this is what A.W. Tozer wrote about that. When it says God is love, it means that love is an essential attribute of God's being. It means that in God is the summation of all love. So that all love comes from God. And it means that God's love, we might say, conditions all of His other attributes. So that God can do nothing except He does it in His love. Now think about that for a second. Everything that God does is through His love. Do we operate that way? I pray we do, but I know we don't. But He does all the time. All that God does derives from His love. Everything within God's justice is love. Within God's sovereignty is His love. Within God's judgment is His love. And this is important for us to understand because some would say that God is love, then it's incompatible with His justice. Because we see today's justice seemingly separate from love and compassion. And yet His love is very much present in His justice. Do you know how we know this? Because all of us has fallen to sin. All of us were born into sin. All of us fall short of the glory of God. And yet, through His loving mercy, He chose you to redeem you, to save you. We didn't deserve that. We didn't deserve any of it. 
We didn't qualify for it. We didn't do good works to obtain it. We weren't special people from this side of the tracks or other people from that side of the tracks. We brought no quality to his choosing of you. He did it solely through his love of mercy to save you because you were lost. You were affected by the original sin. And it's all because of his love. And because of this love, he set in motion from the very beginning of the fall of man, the plan of redemption to redeem you. And this led to the greatest manifestation of love we will ever see. And that was the sending of his son into the world to redeem it. And we see that in verse 9. Now, we all know the scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Since the fall of man, God has set in motion that plan of redemption in order to redeem that which was lost. And since that time, his plan has been unfolding. And since that time, his plan has been prophetically being pronounced through the prophets. And it was expected with great urgency all throughout those times. And then, as part of God's perfect timing and sovereignty, he sent his son, Jesus, born of a virgin, in poor esteem, lying in a manger, by way of an angelic pronouncement, for it said in Luke, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And for those that were in Mike's Sunday school class this morning, you covered that. The greatest manifestation of God's love. Christ had come. Finally, Christ had come. The promised Messiah is here. The Kingsman Redeemer is now amongst us. And the redemption of man is at hand. And this was all made possible because of God's love for you and me. And the reason God sent his son was because in order to redeem us, our sin needed to be dealt with. It could not just be overlooked. It could not just be ignored. It could not just be passed over. It had to be dealt with. It couldn't be just simply dismissed. Why? Because God's own word requires a sacrifice for it. And within the Old Testament law, it's a sin offering, a guilt offering. Because God is holy, He cannot dwell or look upon sin. In fact, some say that when Jesus hung on the cross and said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some people believe, whether that's biblical or not, is that God at that moment looked away from his son. And that's why he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because the sin of the world came upon him. Now, the sin offering in the Old Testament dealt with sin so they could be in the presence of God within the temple. 
Sin had to be dealt with. And the way it was dealt with was an offering. And as a result, sin required a sacrifice, for God's word says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You hear me say that every communion Sunday. It comes out of Hebrews 9.22. And this is what John is speaking of in verse 10. When he uses the term propitiation, now, what does that mean? It's the simplest definition. It means turning away wrath by an offering. You see, our sin requires the wrath of God. But through His Son, Jesus, He propitiated that wrath. He paid for it. Jesus became your substitute. And He assumed our obligations for punishment and took away our guilt by His shed blood. He was the lamb led to the slaughter, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist proclaimed. But here is something we need to understand about Christ's sacrifice. As the Old Testament sacrifices were offered more than once, Christ was once for all. In Hebrews 10.10, And by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. That's why the, the shroud of the temple, the curtain of the temple, was torn in two. The veil of the temple was torn in two. And Christ entered the Holy Holies for the final time. And through Him, we can be in the presence of God through that. This is why it was the greatest manifestation of His love. And that he sacrificed not bulls, not lambs, not doves, but more than once, but, but through Christ, his son, who paid the price. He gave up his son. And it was the greatest sacrifice in all of humanity for a people that didn't deserve it. That's love. How many of you have sacrificed for your children or somebody you love and they didn't deserve it? You did it because you loved them. But there's another dimension we need to acknowledge and submit to. And all through God's Word, the plan of redemption is found in Genesis to Revelation. It is the greatest plan ever devised from love. And we can read it. We can study it. We can meditate it. We can tear it apart and put it back together on a dry erase board or a chalkboard. We can preach it. We can teach it. We can do all of those things because it's true. But the most important aspect of the greatest manifestation of love is that we can experience it. And we are to experience it every single day by walking in the Holy Spirit. Verse 13, By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. The greatest evidence of God's love in us is the Holy Spirit and our transformed life in Him. We can only abide with God through His Holy Spirit. 
You cannot abide with God through religion. You cannot abide with God through nature and experience nature. I had a friend of mine who said, I said, man, do you ever go to church? He goes, every time I go in the field to hunt elk, I'm in church. You're experiencing nature, not God. You cannot abide through just meditation. Oh, I do yoga five times a week and I meditate. You can't abide with God through religious ceremonies and practices. You can only abide with the Father by the way of the Holy Spirit. Prior to Christ, the Holy Spirit would move and empower and anoint, but never completely fill until He was sent after Christ's resurrection. And when Christ departed, He said, I must depart so the Father can send you a helper. A helper who would empower us to live this life in Christ. Because we can't do it on our own. It's impossible. A helper who would give us the abilities and the gifts to minister and to proclaim Christ. But also a helper that would empower us to do what? Love as God loves. You are able to love because God first loved you. Because of the love of God and the Holy Spirit within us, we can only love our neighbors, but also we can love our enemies. Those who have hurt us, those who have wronged us, those who have hated us. I was talking this morning, Tatiana's parents. I did not know this. I wish I would. Tatiana's parents were imprisoned in Russia for their profession of faith in Christ. And yet they love. They love. Because as much as they were commanded not to denounce Christ, they were commanded to love in the power of the Holy Spirit, even to their enemies. Because by way of the Holy Spirit, we can love in a pure way, with a pure heart, with a merciful heart, with a forgiving heart. You see, forgiveness requires love. True forgiveness requires sacrificial love, the sacrifice of giving up the hurt, the wrong, the injustice to forgive. And because of this empowerment by the Holy Spirit and this love that God has for us and we can experience by way of abiding in the Holy Spirit, we can also proclaim it. In verse 14, it says that the Father has sent His Son to the, be the Savior of the world. And they proclaimed it. You see, sometimes we forget that John and Peter and Matthew and even James, his half-brother, witnessed Jesus by seeing the dove ascend, descended upon Christ at His baptism and hearing the voice, This is my Son who I am well pleased. We forget that they heard the teachings of Christ. We forget that they seen the miracles of Christ and heard the proclamation of the kingdom of heaven and witnessed the false imprisonment and persecution, conviction, and ultimately His crucifixion. They all witnessed it. They all seen it. And they experienced the byproducts of that in persecution. 
They were firsthand witnesses to Christ's humiliation, which is that period of time from his birth until his crucifixion. And gives us firsthand evidentiary account of his ultimate purpose in condescending to the earth. Condescending means he gave up. We sang the song, the second song that we sang. We sang, how many kings have given up their thrones? How many lords have given up their homes? How many... I can't read my own handwriting. So anyway... But that second verse in that second song, or the melody of the second song, second verse, scratch that. The second song and the melody of the second song shows the condensation of Christ, the condescending of Christ, not condensation, condescending of Christ, which means he gave, he set aside his glory to come to this earth, to become man, and to be subject to the very law and to be falsely accused, persecuted, and crucified. And all of their letters and epistles' purposes was not to proclaim the historical elements of Jesus' ministry. That's not why they wrote the Gospels and the epistles. It was not to reveal the teachings of Jesus' ministry as a, as a prophet or as a rabbi, as many count him just to be that only or to introduce his ministerial activities. That's not why they wrote the Gospels. That's not why they wrote the Epistles. They wrote them to proclaim the redemption we have in Christ. The redemption you can have in Christ. Because they heard it firsthand in Matthew 20, 28. Even as the Son of Man came to be served to be served came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This whole book is about the redemption of that which was lost, and the Gospels and the Epistles proclaim it in every single letter. I think we miss it sometimes. We get caught up in the academics and knowledge of redemption, but we fail to always experience it in our lives. And we fail in living it out. We fail in proclaiming it out through our lives. We settle by just knowing. And as we talked about in James, just knowing is not enough. We need to be doing, which means we need to be living. We know this. But we fail to experience it every day in our life. The greatest witness we have in Christ is not knowing and reciting Romans Road. The greatest witness we have in Christ is not a sign that says John 3.16 held up in the end zone. The greatest witness that we have is not a tract that you hand out to some unsuspecting person on a street corner. It's not a shirt that says, God, God. The greatest witness we have is a transformed life that is contrary to the world that proclaims the gospel by exemplifying the love of God in our lives. It's the greatest witness. If you read early church history, it grew the church because the world that is lost is always looking for the answer and the key to life. And guess what? 
You have it. Have you ever been approached by somebody and says, you're different, man? What's cooking in you? You don't talk like everybody else. You don't act like everybody else. You don't react like everybody else. You have a few minutes, I'll tell you why. The greatest witness that we have is the transformed life that we live day in and day out in the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's all been because of God's love. But not only that, we've been given a great gift as well, and that is the gift of eternal life. Verse 17, by this love perfected in us that we have confidence by, for the day of judgment, because he is, so also are we in the world. Because he came, and we have received him by faith, and we now possess the Holy Spirit, and now living this transformed life, God's love has been perfected in us. Perfected. Nothing more is required. That which is lost has now been found, and we are one in Christ, reconciled to the Father. You're no longer an enemy of God. You're reconciled to the Father. You can pray to Him intimately through Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. And because of this perfected love we have, we have confidence in the day of judgment. For we will all, we will not see the judgment of man, but we will see the judgment of Christ, the bema seat of Christ. And on Wednesday, we talked about that as we talked about Christ, our coming King. It's not a judgment of sin. That's been dealt with. It is a judgment. The bema seat of Christ is a judgment seat of Christ where we will be judged. But what we did with the gospel, how we lived for Christ, and that which was not lived for Christ will be burnt up. But that which was will be given to you as rewards. That's the judgment seat that we will go to. And because of our faith in Christ and the love of God, we will not suffer the judgment of man, the great white throne judgment. And we will forever be eternally with him. Forever. It is not only what we desire, obviously, in our faith, but it's what we should desire for those that have yet to come to Christ. And it is the love of God that's going to motivate you to speak to them. Because if you truly love someone, you will not want to see them perish for all eternity. And this is the love of God. This is why we light the Advent candle of love. Because true love only comes from the Father because He is love. And the greatest manifestation of His love is sending of His Son to redeem you and me. And the evidence of this love is the Holy Spirit within you and in me. So that we can live out the love of God in our transformed lives. And proclaim it until the great day when either we are called home or Christ returns. But there's one more thing that we need to recognize within our scripture this morning. Now, if you've been following with me as I hit the major themes and the major elements of verses 7 through 21, 
they are all interwoven with the imperatives that God gives us. And that is that we are to love others. For all of the love that God has given us, for all that he has done for us, the greatest manifestation, the transformed life, it is not for us to sit within these chairs and live out our life in the number of days that God has given us. It is to love others. You, one to another, to love your neighbors, to love your enemies, to love all. And if you read those scriptures from 7 to 21, you will see that every major element is intertwined and connected with that imperative. For if God has loved you, then we ought to love others. And that's the Advent candle. That's what it really means. And that's what we really need to receive this morning and live out in our lives. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you loved us first. And because of your love, we are redeemed. And because of your love, we are saved. We receive your Holy Spirit, and we can live out this life you've called us to do in the power of your Holy Spirit, in love, in loving others. Father, help us in the unity of this body to love one another with a pure heart. But Lord, as we walk out this door and we walk out into this world that doesn't care about Advent, doesn't care about what candle it is today, that Father, that we would love them as you loved us. Help us to love our brother, our sister, our friends, our enemies, our co-workers. And give us an opportunity, Lord, to speak of this love with them so that they too can be loved as you've loved us. So thank you, Lord, for your word. And as we now, Father, come before your table and we remember and celebrate the sacrifice that you've given, in order to save us, which is the greatest act of love. Help us to remember this, Lord, as we celebrate your table. In Jesus' name, amen. As the elders come